And welcome to Generations. This is Kevin Swanson as well, Bill Jack from Worldview Academy with me. And Bill, I need to piggyback on a program that we aired just last week. And we got some feedback and I thought it was informative and helpful. And it really spurred me on to more discussion on this issue. And it let me give you some background because you weren't connected on this particular program. We talked about so a great I irony. Have, I have uh, deniability. Yeah, you have all hey, kinds of yeah. deniability. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's not my fault. First and foremost of which, <laughs> I do all the talking. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so earlier this year, Humza Yusuf was installed as the first Muslim leader of a Western nation. That is Scotland. Yusuf is now the first minister at Scotland. Great Britain is led by a Hindu by the name of Rishi Sunak in a post-Christian Western age. So that's that was the topic. We pointed out Deuteronomy 28 of how nations that don't obey God will become debtor nations, become the tail, not the head, etc. Um, and we pointed out a great irony that these nations that once brought Christianity into India and uh, Muslim Sudan and so forth in the 18th and 19th centuries are now led by Hindus and Muslims, not exclusively, but increasingly led by Muslims and Hindus. Right. We considered it somewhat of an irony. And the once Christian nations of Scotland and England um, have opened up to Muslim leadership, uh, four Muslims and three Hindus in the U.S. Congress and so forth. And yeah, not exclusively. And yet there is an increase of this. And I thought this was symbolic and something should be pointed out. Post-Christian nations oftentimes uh, will not put a Christian into power. They don't want Christians anymore. They're sort of embittered against Christians. And that's the way the zeitgeist runs. And I, I don't think there was any controversy on those sorts of issues. Also, the fact that they tend to favor a religious pluralism. That is the assumption that a person's religious perspective does not really play a part in terms of how he thinks or governs. But of course, that's not right. That's that's the Someone always, sacred always, secular dichotomy. Yeah, but you always act according to your basic religious perspective, exactly. how you view you know, ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, the basic uh, worldview elements. So, so we went through that. And one of the questions that came up in the feedback, and I don't want to point out any particular person, but I do think I want to address some of this feedback, is that aren't we supposed to evangelize these folks that come into our countries? And no, I would say, not, absolutely, yes, of course, of course, of course. But course, that, of course. That, that's t- you're, you're arguing apples and oranges here. Yeah, it's a both hands. You, you, you reach out a hand of hope to those who are in false worldviews, but you don't invite them to govern you. You don't encourage them to step into positions of leadership you reserve leadership for those who have a proper biblical worldview so that there is liberty and freedom and, in a sense, a freedom of religion in the sense of pluralistic opportunities for rights of conscience. But you do not invite a non-believer to be the pastor of your church. You do not invite the non-believer to head up a family organization Mm -hmm. because they cannot think biblically. They do not think biblically. Mm -hmm. And even if they do, they're not going to act that way consistently, as consistently as as a believer would, who holds to there is an outside objective standard by which we judge actions. That standard is God's word. That is my worldview. That's why it's refreshing to see and hear from a Mike Johnson, who's now elected as Speaker of the House, because he has been very forthcoming with, here, you want to know my worldview? Read the Bible. Yeah. yeah, that that's that's pretty clear. Now, mm-hmm. does he interpret it properly? We'll soon find out. Okay, but you don't want a Hindu telling you what a biblical view of government should be. 
He cannot tell you that and, and, and consistently govern well. Well, and one of the issues is that, you know, we need to be evangelizing. And I agree with this, actually. But there's two issues. One is who gets to be president of the United States yeah, or who gets to be elected as the next congressman representing my district. And the other issue is evangelism. Yeah. And I think it's a both and. On the one hand, yes, we have an opinion in relation to who leads nations. And we, at the same time, want to be evangelizing those that come into our nations. We're increasingly the crossroads of the world. And these folks that come in from different countries, yes. I, I'm not saying they shouldn't come in with some mention of xenophobia. I, yeah, they know they should come in to our nations, and that's okay. There may be a limit to immigration, what nations can sustain, no, and I get that maybe. too. There should be a limit but, to immigration. And, but I, but, but you know. when they come over here, what do we do? Now, I think a lot of the reasons for the failure to disciple the nations results in the wrong people getting elected. And in other words, if we didn't yeah. if we didn't properly disciple, I don't care their skin color. It's not an issue to me. I don't care their ethnic background. Not an issue to me. But if we have neglected to disciple the nations and, and those who have come into the nations, and we have neglected to disciple those who vote for our leaders, we're going to get the wrong leaders. We're, we're going to get the wrong worldview represented in governments. Often, too often, we get the wrong leaders who who are who tout their Christian faith. Well, that too. I, I, in local elections, I've heard candidate after candidate openly in public forums tout their Christian faith. I, re, I recall one lady who who quoted an entire chapter of the Bible to her credit, but she had no clue as to what the biblical role of government is and what her role would be if she were elected. And that's the problem. We've got a lot of people who love Jesus with their hearts, but they're trained to think secularly. That's no different than electing a devout Hindu or a devout Muslim to uh, head a Western country, because they cannot think biblically. Even Christians have a difficult time, if not an impossible time in today's culture, thinking and acting biblically. So made me think of what happened on college campuses years ago in which Christian clubs were ordered by the schools that they had to admit as members atheists or Hindus or Muslims into their Christian club, and that those, those members then could be uh, up for election in, as officers in the clubs. And there's a, there's a right of association issue that's, that's attached to that. But that, that has bearing on what we, we were just saying. Why would I want an atheist to head up a Christian club on a campus? That is contrary to what the purpose of the club is. You want them to attend. You want them to, to be free to come and engage. But you do not want them in positions of leadership. That would be the same thing with a Hindu running the UK or, or, or a Muslim running Scotland. Those are historically Western cultures, Western governments established on biblical worldviews, and to bring in those who are outsiders to that worldview is disastrous. But here's a point but I th- want to make. And that's what we're seeing here in this nation. Yeah, what I want to make. we got secularists running a nation that was founded on biblical principles. And, and that's the point, Bill. That's the point right there. The point is that already we've turned the nation over the secularists, which yes. are post-Christian nihilists whose agenda is to destroy the nations. Yes. And I don't know that 
some of these listeners realize that we are already under the judgment of God. Yes, I agree. Because, not just because we are electing Muslims and Hindus, but because we are electing polytheists, pluralists, secularists. humanists, secularists. People who don't believe in God. People believe in evolution. People who don't receive God's law as the basis for truth, but rather are making up law as they go and bringing in sexual forms of nihilism and destroying the nation by perverting sexuality and destroying children. Uh, this particular input says you talk about the few Muslim, Hindu, etc. leaders in the U.S. and Scotland as a form of God's judgment on these Western nations for sexual immorality and secularism. Wouldn't it be straight a line of causation to say that if having these leaders is a bad thing, it's God's judgment on the West for the sin of colonialism. He goes to colonialism, which is a sin. Well, some of it was a sin. We have to be cautious with it. We have to determine whether it was a sin by the standard of God's law, which he doesn't do. He doesn't use God's law. God's law is not a factor in this particular input. But God's law has got to be the standard for determining what is just and what is unjust, what is moral and what is immoral. And I'll get to uh, colonialism in just a moment. He said, uh, also, when you quote the passage from Deuteronomy about you being the tail and foreigners being the head, if you don't obey the Lord, your modern day application sounds xenophobic. I would say not being xenophobic, not exactly fearing strangers, not fearing strangers, simply saying that, uh, well, we need to fear God. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Very, very essential for all of us. And uh, while we should take the gospel to everybody, I I, I do believe that uh, God judges nations. And this is something that uh, is ignored very much, uh, as if God is disconnected with nations. But if God was willing to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon for their disobedience, I would think that God would still judge post-Christian nations that are shaking their fist in Almighty God's face they're doing the same thing Sodom and Gomorrah did uh, some 4,000 years ago. Would God not judge nations for the same thing? Exactly. Now, he, how does he judge nations? He, he, he raises he, up he, other he, nations. And he raises up leaders who oppose a Christian world and life view and curtail biblical standards of liberty, biblical standards of righteousness. And you've got to assume that God's law is the best standard by which that the revealed law of God is the best standard by which we live our lives. That God's law as revealed to us is the best standard by which to maximize human liberty. In fact, the word of God calls God's law the law of liberty. So we, we assume that. We assume it's the best law. That Hindu law, humanist law, socialist law, Sharia secular law. law, Sharia law is not good law. And so when he turns this over to the humanists, not, not just to the Muslims, the Hindus, but the humanists, the secularists, the evolutionists, he's turning us over to those powers that would bring misery to our economies, misery to our social systems, and thereby ze- we are yeah. under the judgments of God. How is it xenophobic to say if you, if you are indebted to a Marxist country or a tyrannical com- country that, that that is somehow xenophobic? It is just a fact of what scripture says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. Mm. They're going to call the shots. And who do you want calling shots? You know, do you want somebody who has a biblical worldview or do you want somebody who has a secular worldview? Now he moves on and says, you know, if you're upset about people immigrating into the countries, you're looking down on the Hindus, the Muslims. Well, it's not a matter of looking down on certain people. It's a matter of distinguishing between that which is right worldview perspective and that which is a wrong worldview perspective. So we don't, you know, we're not polytheists. We don't think immediately that 
all worldviews are equal. And a country has a right to set a border. And a country has a right to determine what's going to make it a country. There have to be shared values. There has to be a common language. There has to be a common currency. And those things are very, very important to any nation that decides to be a nation. And that's why borders exist. So to eliminate uh, requirements for becoming a citizen would mean that you have what are commonly called open borders. Then you do not have a nation. There has to be shared values, shared ideology. You have to have a cohesion. You have to have a glue that, that keeps people together. And that, that's our Constitution. That's the Declaration of Independence. And it used to be our Bible. shared values that came from the Word of God, and that's less and less the case, and that's why God has turned us over to these bad worldviews. One more comment made, I would urge you to look beyond the religion of these leaders. And consider what an opportunity it is for Christians to show real Christ-like love. No, no, Kevin, look beyond their religion. Their religion should define their economics. Your religion should define your politics. Your religion should define your role of government. If you have what is called a privatized religion, you have no religion at all. So I cannot look past one's worldview and say, I'm going to ignore the Marxist's worldview and because of the color of his tie, because he's a nice guy, elect him to public office. When Representative Garcia here in the, in the state of Colorado chided a, a witness before her committee by saying, God does not make laws, we do. Should I ignore that worldview and say, oh, because she's, she's cute or because she, she's smart? or because she, she's pleasant, or because she smiles a lot, or because I like the color of her shoes, I'm going to vote her in office. No, I take into account worldview statements like mm-hmm. that, which are mm-hmm. religious statements. That is, the, I, I'm going to take exception, strong exception with that statement. That is, that is compartmentalization to the max and saying that we don't take into account a person's public religion when we when we consider them for positions of authority in whatever area yeah to set aside their worldview and to show them christ-like love well that's you know that's i can a, show that's i can a, show the atheist christ-like hang, love. Hang on. that that's a false dichotomy yes, that's an either is. or fallacy be very careful about either or fallacies that's an obvious logical fallacy that somehow we can set aside the religion of the leaders as if it has no impact upon their politics and a religion is a worldview as you said a worldview is a perspective of metaphysics and ethics and an epistemology it's 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 important it's 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 what from which all of your policies and your perspectives and your laws are going to be derived so so on the one hand absolutely we need to look at their religion for these new leaders and and realize that they're going to take the nations in the wrong direction well, as much as the secularists and these modern socialists that uh, do not subscribe to Scripture, but rather uh, have embraced the worship of man. Uh, so, so all of these worldviews are concerning to us, absolutely. But here's the point. Yes, of course we can show Christ-like love to them. We can maintain different perspectives politically and point out different ethical positions, and we can disagree, and we can not vote for people, not support them, etc., 
Christian politicians actually can disagree with each other across the aisle and still evangelize their counterparts in the Capitol cafeteria. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. So it's a both and. We can't set one against the other as if we can oppose their religion, their perspectives, their policies, their laws, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, somehow not love them, somehow not be willing to evangelize them. That's a false dichotomy. We don't want to go there. We should be able to allow for a big picture analysis as to the religious shift of nations, to polytheism and humanism and so forth, while at the same time we engage evangelism with our neighbors and coworkers. So it's a both and. The idea that somehow if we take this position against uh, the wrong way of doing politics in a country that has disabled us to speak to our neighbors about the love of Christ, that's just a false dichotomy. That's, that's not, to be, not to be considered in the Christian way of thinking. I'd like to ask, you know, what does this writer mean by Christ's love? And what, what does that mean, we show Christ's love? And, and how does he know that that's what Christ's love is? Because I would urge him to look at Romans 13 in its entirety. And the, the, the example is Romans 13, 8, I owe nothing to any man except to love one another. And then it goes on in verse 9 to list four or five, depending on your translation, of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. If you love your neighbor, you have restraints on his activities mm-hmm. and on your activities. If I love my neighbor, I don't steal my neighbor's car. I don't steal my neighbor's wife. I don't steal my neighbor's life. Uh, it's an act of the will based on a standard, and that standard is God's word. It's not a gushy, mushy feeling. It is an act of the will based on a standard. So what does he mean by Christ's love? What does he mean by government? And what does he mean when, when he's saying that your religion should play no part in your selection of elected officials? Yeah. Well, there's absolutely no fear whatsoever, but just simply taking a position against that which does not agree with God's word. We are to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God in Christ. We're to oppose bad systems of thought, bad religions, bad philosophies, Colossians 2 and verse 8, and, and yet at the same time, bring the gospel to those who absolutely need it because they're lost in sin. They've broken God's laws, and Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel. And we want to be sure that we point out their sins and then point out Jesus. In, in a prison ministry, would you ignore the, the criminal's uh, guilt and his punishment and just say, I need to show the love of Christ to this person, so we need to set him free? No, there, there's, a, there's a both and. There's, for the individual, you show the love of Christ, but he's accountable for his actions under the law. So that same principle of, you know, we just need to show people Christ's love. Well, that's, that's just, that's a perverted perspective of the character of God. God is holy, God is just, God is loving, God is merciful. And, but we tend to fall on one side or the other. But to distort, to only emphasize one aspect of his character, the loving side or the justice side, is to distort the character of our Creator and our God. Well, I want to end with a little bit of a discussion on colonialism because colonialism came out several times. Indeed, colonialism was somewhat of a problem over the centuries, as defined by whose law? Man's law. Man's law or God's law? Yeah. It's a good question. See, the assumption that colonialism was evil is almost always based on 
man's law, not God's law. Because the average humanist today doesn't care about God's law, what God's law says. Because they're antinomian, because they're against God and against his law. But, but, but the colonialism did have issues. Now, here's an excerpt I take from my new world history book, Taking the World for Jesus. The 19th century prepared the world for vast changes, which we will briefly summarize before reviewing the tremendous influence the Lord Jesus Christ brought to bear. More than ever before, the West set the direction for the whole world. Western thinkers like Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Frederick Nietzsche, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau would lead the way for much of what transpired in South America, China, Korea, Japan, and nations throughout Africa. Two ideological powers collided and competed throughout the world for over 200 years. First, there was the virulent humanist apostasy, which had turned sharply against Jesus Christ. And then there was the greater power of Jesus and his people. The transforming influence of Jesus Christ was beyond anything the world had ever seen. As the parables presented it, the yeast was moving through the bread, and the grain of mustard seed would grow into a global-sized tree. Confusion between the sheep and the goats sometimes plagued the missionary movement. Christian missionaries would be blamed for the slave trade, while the anti-Christian materialists would be commended for bringing education, economic blessings, and improved cultural habits to primitive countries. In truth, the humanists and materialists were enslaving the nations and introducing big government tyranny into Asia, Africa, and South America, while genuine Christians were actually proclaiming true liberty to the captives. Stable economies, peaceful and prosperous conditions, and long-term blessing will only come when Christians disciple the nations in authentic biblical faith and character. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce healthy economies, not relying upon chattel slavery. The period of Western colonialism extended from A.D. 1500 until 1875, roughly. It was the largest resettlement of human civilization since the fall of Rome and the subsequent invasions that followed. There were two forms of colonial economies that developed in the Americas, the one much healthier and more sustainable than the other. The Puritans and Pilgrims relied on family economies, established family farms, did not build large plantations based on slave labor. However, the influence of the Spanish and the Portuguese in South America introduced the slave trade to the southern colonies where wealthy investors developed their large plantations, yet in aggregate and over the long haul, slavery was ineffectual at developing the moral character of nations. The effects of colonialism as the migration of Western governments, peoples, and capital into these far-off countries were a mixed bag. Wherever the Western countries sent missionaries and carried the redemptive message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, there were always tangible blessings, but unbelieving Westerners exported the sins of greed, covetousness, envy, sexual sin, and pride Deleterious conditions prevailed. Some felt that colonialism and slavery provided the only way to improve the lot of morally and spiritually degraded tribes perpetually bogged down in tribal warfare and those nations steeped in human sacrifice, witchcraft, and gross superstitions. Slothfulness, ignorance, illiteracy, poverty, and the lack of sanitation produced extremely high infant mortality rates, low life expectancy, and endemically bad economies. Could these conditions be improved by colonial slave-based institutions? Such a line of thinking rests upon the assumption that the core nature of man may be fundamentally improved by governments, by powerful human institutions, by cruel beatings, or by sheer economic power. This is a tremendous miscalculation at the most basic level of human knowledge. Where there is no gospel, and where the Spirit of God does not change the hearts, the lack of character among the pagan tribes cannot be improved by governments and colonial powers in any substantial and sustainable way. Contrary to the humanist vision for the world, education and technology are likewise incapable of improving man's condition without him using these very things to destroy himself. 
Now and then governments can rid nations of the worst evils, such as human sacrifice with the Aztecs, sati or widow burning in India, infanticide in most countries around the world. But these are the only low-hanging and worst fruits of that evil substance that has absorbed into every nook and cranny of the human heart. To get any significant change in the hearts and lives of men that will provide improved health, education, and economy over the long term would require a regeneration of the heart. And that only comes by the preaching of the gospel, the discipleship of the nations, daily family worship, Holy Spirit illumination, and ready access to the Word of God. Centuries later, serious debate continues over the benefits of colonialism. Those who know and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord over all will readily testify that all of history works out for the benefit of His church and the growth of His kingdom. Ephesians 1.22 The ungodly will exchange one form of slavery for another. They trade one form of evil for an equally bad or worse alternative. But Jesus will be sure that even that which is meant for evil will turn out for good in his cause. Meanwhile, the empires of men replace the old habits of infanticide, the killing of a child already born with modern abortion and pills that produce abortion, the killing of an unborn child. They replace tribal warfare with not-so-civil wars and gang warfare in the inner cities. They replace slavery with huge prison populations in the modern welfare state. Polygamy is replaced by fatherless families where 73% of inner-city children are born without fathers. If anything, these powerful nations without Jesus only make things worse. That being said, colonialism did provide more ready access for missionaries to far-off foreign nations and generally reducing the risks of persecution and political resistance for these servants of Christ. At the very least, the trade routes and trading companies enabled adequate means of transportation to far-off places by which the gospel could reach the unconverted. During the 19th century, the English government was sometimes unfavorable, but more often favorable to missionary work. Nonetheless, as testified in earlier chapters, the heavy hand of dictatorial Western governments would very often lead a bad taste in the mouth of the native populations for the missionaries. This is a sinful world. Whether civilized or uncivilized, whether Christian or non-Christian nation, every tribe of the earth will be characterized by some form of sin. Slavery, debt, disease, wars, and death are all consequences of living in a world plagued by sin. While some nations might be relieved slightly of some egregious sins and consequences of sin now and then, there will be no perfection until Christ comes back and makes all things new. Certainly no Christian should minimize any particular sin, whether it be violations of God's law on the part of the Western colonials or anyone else. The standard by which to judge the nation or that must be the law of God is communicated to us from God in the Old and New Testaments. Well. That wraps up that uh, summary of colonialism, and that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast, friends. I hope this has been somewhat clarifying as we consider what happened to the Western world, as we see what happened in the competition of worldviews in the 1800s and 1900s, as the mission work of the gospel of Jesus Christ went all over the world during the greatest centuries of missions. Big things have happened around the world. But for right now, I think the big takeaway for us, Bill, is that uh, the Western world's been humbled. Yeah. Indeed. We I should mean, be. I don't know that we are. We, we should be humbled. Uh, we'll be forced to bow the knee. Yes. We, we, might, we might have a revival. Yes. That would be great. But we are being humbled. We are surrendering our nations to that which destroys nations. Bad worldviews that will not sustain the liberty, the blessings that God has given to nations that have been obedient to him throughout the eons of time. 
Well, get the full story at uh, our website, generations.org. I'd encourage you to epoch the rise and fall of the West, which really tells the full story. It's hard to put everything into one program. That's why we create alternative programs to help people see the full story. But you got to read this full story in my book, Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West, to better understand these things. So don't give way to, uh, to the idea that Jesus Christ has been unsuccessful in history and that Christianity has failed. Oh, no. The Christian faith is all over the world today. Thanks to the work of Jesus here in the West and all over the world. Read the full story in Taking the World for Jesus, an epoch, the rise and fall of the West, available at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. <laughs>